are in Judges chapter 19. Um, this will be our last message in the book of Judges. I said last week, for some that may be cause for celebration. Um, I would just encourage, uh, I would love to be able to teach and preach everything that I have gleaned uh, from studying this book over the last, whatever it's been, eight or nine weeks, six or eight weeks. Um, there is just so much tremendous content here um, that is just incredible, incredibly eye-opening to the reality of our sin as well as the grace of our God. And so let me encourage you, even though we're finishing Judges today, let me encourage you to continue to read, continue to study, and just, just meditate on His Word. Um, I'm going to read just one verse, but let me invite you to stand as we do. It's going to be uh, Judges chapter 19, verse 1. And um, we're going to get launched into these chapters. We're going to look at three chapters, 19, 20, and 21. Judges chapter 19, verse 1 says, In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Father, we pray this afternoon as we encounter your word, uh, that you would that you would open our hearts to see the reality of sin, help us to understand the consequences of sin, uh, but also help us to be sensitive uh, to many who have suffered, uh, not just from sin, but particularly the sin that we're going to talk about here this this afternoon. As we close this book, it is comes with a sad ending. It comes with an ending that uh, leaves us for wanting more and. Thank you that that is the way you wrote it. And so as we come to this conclusion of these stories from the book of Judges, I do pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and for you, that we would walk with you and know you, that we would repent of sin and believe that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Before we get started, I, I do want to offer a, uh, a word of care. These chapters, especially chapter 19, depict an extremely traumatic event. An event that many people, and specifically many women, have tragically experienced at the hands of a violent and vile perpetrator. Sadly, as in the era of the judges, so today, neither the home nor the place designated for worship is automatically a safe place. Sexual assault is real. Many have experienced it, and many more have friends or family members who have walked that journey. The the lifetime effects of sexual assault are often silently suffered by many victims most of the time who go unnamed or unknown. This story graphically details such an assault. I'll summarize the story 
But I want you to know, if you're a sufferer, if this is something that you have suffered, there is the potential for re-traumatization. <clears throat> so I enter this with caution, because sadly the victim of this story is not rescued. But even though that's the case, we see that through the actions of sinful men, yes, but we see that God is the avenger of the sufferer. I promise I'll be as sensitive as I can to the issue of his pain, but I also want to do my best to depict the horror and the putrid nature of sin. With that, I want us to see the first point of this story this afternoon. To summarize chapter 19, we open with another Levite. This is not the same Levite we met in chapter 17 and 18. The author is drawing a comparison. We'll see this more clearly in a few moments. But he's drawing a comparison between the two. Neither of them are at the tabernacle where they should be. And both are seeking personal satisfaction instead of shepherding the people of God the way their tribe was called to. This Levite has a concubine. The Hebrew word translated concubine is troubling to many translators and commentators. It could mean his wife. This is assumed when they are with her father, and the text calls him the father-in-law of the Levite. It could mean that he is that she is his second wife. This carries the connotations that she is a servant to him that not only provides for household work, but also provides conjugal services as well. There is also inflection in this word use and the structure of these sentences that she not only provided these services to him, but the Levite also sold these services to others. The focus on this woman in this story is really that she is dehumanized from the beginning to the end. One of the themes we mentioned when we began the book of Judges several weeks ago was the degradation in the treatment of members of society, especially members whose status was low, and even more specifically, the treatment of women. This book opens with two strong women characters. The first is Akshah. She is the wife of the first judge, Othniel. She was, a, she was strong and she was wise. She was forward-thinking in her planning for her future and her family. She was the daughter of Caleb, one of the two spies who, along with Joshua, urged the Israelites to take the land of Canaan, but were refused. The second is Deborah, a prophetess, who judged in the judicial sense the affairs of the Jewish people. God used her both to call and support Barak in leading his people to defeat an oppressive enemy, a victory 
secured by another strong woman when Jael killed the enemy general. There's one other strong woman mentioned near the end of the book of Judges, and that is Samson's mother. She proves her faith and wisdom throughout her pregnancy by obeying all of the commands that the Lord gave her when he told her she would conceive a child. However, the treatment of women sadly dissolves to the tragic and the horrific as God's people move further and further away from faithfulness to him. The judge Gideon, the one who doubted God and returned to idolatry after his victory, was described as a man with 70 sons, for he had many wives. We remember the heartbreak of Jephthah, sacrificing his daughter in exchange for personal pride. Samson began his life by marrying an enemy Philistine woman. That led him to killing 30 men, then burning the fields of the Philistines, then killing a thousand more men. Then he visited a, we'll just call it a nightclub, where he met a prostitute, which led him being ambushed yet again. And because this isn't enough, he, just, he was deceived by Delilah that ultimately cost him his life. The story we looked at last week in chapter 19 opens with a thieving son whose unfaithful mother funds an idolatrous family shrine. And now we come to this unnamed woman who is ultimately forsaken by her husband, her father, her guardian, and then tortured and killed by the townsmen. But sadly, her story is not the final tragedy towards women. We'll see this again in a few moments after the defeat of the tribe of Benjamin. 400 virgins are stolen from the destruction of a city and families, and then 200 more are kidnapped, all 600 of them then forced into marriage. And that's how Judges ends. Sexual sin is depicted in nearly every event of these stories. If it's not that, then these women are sacrificed as acts of worship to the gods of the Canaanites, though the Israelites actually believed that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, desired these forbidden offerings. Their minds are filled with evil, or as the text says, that which is right in their own eyes. So much so that they cannot or they refuse to see the goodness and hope of God. And they treat with gross disregard those whom they should be most profoundly seeking to protect. When sin takes over a culture, the most vulnerable are those most frequently sacrificed. We see this today. Vulnerable children, vulnerable boys and girls, who are being plotted towards gender dysphoria. We see children exploited through human trafficking and oftentimes vile experimentation. I read a journal article this week that started with this, this statement. Behavioral geneticists 
are developing tools to attempt to predict individual intelligence based on genetics. Ultimately, they are seeking to determine which children are worthy of being born based on gene studies, which they claim can predetermine everything from the height of the child to the intelligence of the child to the likelihood of the child developing certain diseases or conditions and even to predict the child's future behavior. Based on these quote-unquote genetic factors, the ultimate goal is, to, is the production of worthy children free of harmful behavioral traits and intellectual deficiencies. <clears throat> That's the exact same thinking that was going on a hundred years ago that we call eugenics that ultimately led to the Holocaust and the forced sterilization of at least 70,000 Americans between 1940 and 1970. And I won't get into that. I'll be here all day. Our society is raping and pillaging our most vulnerable citizens. This is true of women and children, even in our churches, as well as those who suffer from trauma or struggles with addiction or crime or illness or any number of other circumstances that creates a discrimination of the weakened. The people of Israel lost their duty of responsibility the further and further away they ran from God. This is most evident in the progression of the depiction of women in the book of Judges. This woman, known only as the Levite's concubine, is the quintessential example. This story continues as she went to her father's home for four months. The Levite found her and reclaimed her there. And after five days of drunken partying with her father, the Levite finally left and spent the night in the town of Gibeah in the region of the tribe of Benjamin. From this point on, the story harkens back to Abraham and the city of Sodom and its only righteous person, Lot. The Levite and his crew found rest in the home of a man who invited them in and cared for their needs. Then, like Sodom, the people of the city rose up, came to the house, demanded the Levite man be surrendered to the people, we'll just say for exploitation. The old host refused, again, beckoning back to Lot in Sodom, with those angelic visitors who came to him. And like Sodom, the host in Gibeah offered the two women who were in the house, the Levite's concubine and the host's virgin daughter. Unlike Sodom, where the angels struck the townspeople with blindness and confusion, these people accepted the offer of the concubine. And Judges chapter 19, verse 25, just simply says they knew her, and abused her all night until the morning. As the dawn began to break, they let her go. Meanwhile, the men stayed inside, presumably sleeping off a good night of drunken partying. The Levite 
the next morning, unconcerned with the condition of his woman, finds her lifeless body on the doormat. And he orders her to get up. And when she doesn't move, he throws her on his donkey, takes her home, and dismembers her. The violence of sin is unmistakable. After the tragedy of chapter 19, we open chapter 20 to understand the second truth of this story, and that is the consequences of sin. Here we have to go back yet again and look at a running theme throughout this book. You may remember from Judges chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, God left pagan nations in the land to test his people. Those verses read, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. And it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites. They were for the testing of Israel. Secondly, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served other gods. Two tests are leveled by God on his people. First is that they would know war. Now this is not just the capacity to fight a battle, but is a specific type of war. The Hebrew word is translated haram, or what we would call holy war. This war was the execution of God's judgment on nations who persisted in idolatry. It is designated by the command to utterly destroy all the land, all the people, livestock, and every living thing from the nation. Holy war was to be executed by the people of God who were faithful to keep his commands, abstaining from idolatry and keeping their people from intermarrying with pagans. God's people failed both tests. They continually did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They continually worshipped the pagan gods of the land. And they never removed the pagan nations as they had been commanded. Yet when we open up chapter 20, when we come to chapter 20, we actually see them passing the test of holy war. It's a hard story for us to read, but it is what God had commanded. As the Levite took his dismembered concubine around the tribes of Israel, and they all witnessed the wickedness portrayed by, perpetrated by the Benjamites, Judges chapter 20 verse 1 opens with these words, Then all the people of Israel, <coughs> all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, 
including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord in Mizpah. This is the only time in the entire book where all of Israel, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the path in the south, this is the only time the entire nation of Israel completely united against a common enemy. The problem was the enemy was a brother. The tribe of Benjamin was their brothers. They were given an opportunity to hand over what the Bible calls the worthless fellows who surrounded the house and violated the Levites' concubine. The city leaders, the Benjamite leaders, refused to give up their own people. And so the nation of Israel mounted an army of 400,000 men. In the meantime, Benjamin built its own force of 26,000 men, including, the Bible says, 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Every one of them could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Now, you may, remind, may remember the description of a left-handed judge named Ehud who killed the fat cow king Eglon of Moab in chapter 3. Some commentators speculate that Ehud might actually have been one of these 700. The sin of Benjamin must be judged and must be judged righteously. The concept of holy war was justified as they remained unrepentant in their destruction and violation of this woman. The 400, the 400,000 faced off against the 26,000. And the first two rounds of battle went to the underdogs. The first battle saw 22,000 Israelites fall by the sword. The second battle saw 18,000 die. The turning point in this war comes in Judges chapter 20, verse 26 to 28, where the Bible says all the people of Israel, again, all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the priest said that the Lord told, him, told them, The Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give you, I will give them into your hand. Here's the only person named in these three chapters. No one else has a name except Phineas. And it's the only time that someone is specifically identified as a priest. And the only mention of the Ark of the Covenant. 
This priest has his own history. This history stretches from the book of Numbers through the book of Judges. This demands an early date for this story, much like we had in the last story as this priest is Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. Aaron is Moses' brother, the first high priest. Phineas in this story and Jonathan from the last story are cousins. Phineas has quite a history. In Numbers chapter 25, he killed an Israelite and his pagan date in the act of desecrating the tabernacle with cultic intimacy as an act of worship to the god Baal. He also prevented in Joshua 22 a civil war after the tribes who had settled on the west side of the Jordan River made an altar that could have divided the worship of God's people. His negotiation with them was vital to keeping peace among his people. After an entire book of stories where we learn the names of nearly everyone, even minor characters, Phineas is the only person given in a name in this whole story, and he actually stood on God's behalf. In Judges chapter 20, Phineas tells the people of Israel, The Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. And so through a military tactic, Israel lured the army of Benjamin away from the city of Gibeah. They attacked it. They destroyed it, killing all the men, the women, the children, the livestock. They burned the cities, and then they moved through the region of Benjamin, destroying all their cities. Judges chapter 20 tells us, Judges chapter 20 verse 35 says this, The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So that the people of Benjamin saw they, that they were defeated. They killed everybody in the tribe of Benjamin. Except 600 men who escaped to the wilderness of the Rock of Rimon. And they remained there for four months. The consequences of sin are devastating. The actions of the Israelites against the Benjamites is horrific. It's impossible for us to comprehend. But it's justified. Sin must be purged and the unjust must be judged and sometimes removed. And here is where we see the final point that I want us to learn from this story and the book of Judges. And that is the value of a just king. This story not only looks at the previous stories found in the history of Israel, it also looks forward to the future. Particularly, it contrasts the unjust King Saul with the just King David. Saul 
the first king of Israel, the king the people demanded to be like all the other nations, was from the tribe of Benjamin, this sinful enemy of the story. This tribe had not only perpetrated grave evil, but also permitted it and then fought to near extinction to defend it. This is the home of King Saul. And it reflects his kingship and the way he would later rule Israel. As a matter of fact, Saul's hometown is Gibeah, the exact location of this horror. 1 Samuel chapter 10 tells us that. In 1 Samuel chapter 10, we also find worthless fellows that come up against Saul. So even by the time of Saul, they are still rejecting to honor the Lord and the Lord's anointed. As opposed to David, who will later honor Saul despite his pursuing David to kill him. The contrast is David. David is from Bethlehem, the original location of both these Levites. David was the least of his brothers, yet the mightiest and bravest in battle. He was God's instrument as he judged with righteousness the sinfulness of pagan nations who attacked Israel. The story in chapter 21 is just as sorrowful as the others. The people of Israel are weeping again. The people of Israel, not the people of Benjamin. The people of Israel are weeping again. But this time it's not because Benjamin won in battle. It's because they lost. And lost gravely. Every single Benjamite is dead. Save 600 men. When they die, this brother tribe no longer exists. But because of an oath of Israel, which they refused to give their daughters to marry anyone from Benjamin, they needed to devise a plan for the propagation of this people. Stage one of this plan was to find an Israelite people who did not vow or fight with Israel against Benjamin. They found such a people in a city called Jabesh-Gilead. So Israel sent an army of 12,000, laid waste to the city, killed all of the inhabitants except for 400 young virgins who they kidnapped as brides for Benjamin. That was not enough women, women for every Benjamite man abroad. So the army of Israel defended the remaining Benjamites as they kidnapped 200 more virgins from a worship festival at Shiloh. These actions were never commanded by God. They were never commended by God. And the people never sought God's counsel. What we see here, if you will, is discipline taken too far. Yes, the holy war command is to exterminate the pagan people and their lands. But this was never the command when holding accountable the people of God. Even God would always leave a remnant. And here is why the people need a just king. A king would be true to God. A king would be true to the word of God. He would be true 
to the justice of God and the will of God. And so this book closes. The final words of the compiler of these stories are these. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The ending is sad. It leaves you wanting resolution. But none is found. Church, there are valuable lessons for us from these chapters in this book. The flow of this story, even from the flow of this story we look at today. Sin is wickedness. And evil and dreadfully violent to our relationships with one another and our relationships to God. The wages of sin is death. Ultimately, it is eternal death. And that is a just death. The horrors of these stories of judgment do not compare to the horrors of hell. Sin is real. And sin is eternally deadly. As long as we walk around this world without a king, we will not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. We will only do what is right in our own eyes and evil in the eyes of the Lord. These stories end in a hopeless situation. As said during our Bible study hour, there is no happily ever after end. At least not yet anyway. These stories cause the people who first read them to long. It caused them to desire a king. A king like David. A king who was a friend of God. A king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. A king who would lead them, as Psalm 78, 72 says, with an upright heart he shepherded them. And he guided them with his skillful hands. Our churches, too many, are being led astray from the God of the gospel. The Bible is not the authoritative word of God. Jesus is not the King of kings and he is not the eternal Savior and the Redeemer. Churches are dying, ministries are failing, and churches are filled with men and women who in their hearts believe in the idea of a God, but are doing what is right in their own eyes and are blindly bound for eternal separation from God in a place called hell. We need a king. Israel gets their king. We see that hope in the book of Ruth. That's where we'll be next week. We have our King. And His name is Christ. His name is Jesus. He took all of the violence of our sin. He bore them on the cross. He took all of the death-filled consequences of our sin. And He defeated them on our behalf. Jesus is 
the risen King. We do have hope. In the middle of a hopeless world, we have hope. So what are we to do with these stories? First, we faithfully follow the one true King. Secondly, we faithfully care for vulnerable people. Third, we repent of sin and we lead others to do the same. Next, we biblically hold accountable those who refuse to repent. Then we restore the repentance and pray for the lost. And finally, we do it again tomorrow. And then every other tomorrow that the Lord leads us on this planet. We strive for one goal, and that's holiness in Christ. That's doing what's right in the eyes of the King. I'm ending today with Psalm 60. Psalm 60 is a cry to God to restore his people and to grant salvation grant them salvation against our greatest enemy Psalm 60 Oh God you have rejected us broken our defenses you have been angry Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in his holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the veil of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoes. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our army. Oh, grant us help against our foe. For vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall move valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. Father, we thank you for these weeks we've been able to spend in Judges. We said at the beginning, it is a very hard book. We experienced as we read through and heard and studied and listened to your word 
that the depth of depravity and the lengths that we will go to rebel against you are extensive. And yet, always, you are on your throne. Always, your ear is ready to hear the repentant cry of your people. Father, the, the reason given, especially at the end of this book, the reason given for this cycle of tragedy that we see all the way through this book is that people did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. There was no one who acted justly on your behalf. There was no one who executed righteousness among your people. Even the priests, even the tabernacle, even the places of worship are absent from these stories. So Father, I would pray as we continue to meditate on this, as we continue to study this, as you just continue to penetrate into our hearts, helping us to recognize where our own sin is, where our own pain is, where our own suffering is, that that would be the place that you would meet us. That that would be the place, Father, where we recognize our need for repentance. Where we cry out to you in faith and by grace you restore and heal. Father, I pray for your church, this church, churches across our community, nation, and world. That we would again come back to your word. That we would do that which is right in your eyes. That we would do that which is according to to your just commands. That we would in a righteous manner, in a holy manner, in a biblical manner, fight against the sin that's in our own lives, but also the sin that continues to bring itself to fruition in the church. That you would help us to restore, that you would help us to lead others to repentance. That, Father, this would be a place where our pains can be known and our lives can be healed. Because we have a king. And his name is Jesus. So Father for the one that doesn't know you. I pray that they would see King Jesus. And they would come to him. Father for those of us who do know you. And who claim to know you. That we would afresh see your face again. New every day. And that we would come to you and cling to you. That we would know you and walk with you. And Father, just because of the content of this story, we recognize that there are thousands of people across our nation, millions of people across our world, who are living with the victimization of being harmed. Oftentimes violently by someone they trusted. And so, Father, wherever that person is today, I pray 
that your spirit would touch their hearts, that you would grab a hold of them and that they would feel, that they would sense, that they would know that there is a God and that God loves them and that they can find healing and hope. They can find restoration and peace. And that, Father, you, you will act justly in their case. You will do that which is right. And so, Father, we pray for these victims, women, children, others all around us, as they can see you and know you and find peace in you. Father, that you would use your church to love them where they are, to embrace and to hold, to comfort, to weep. And then in all these things, we can see your hand of glory at work. Father, as we continue to worship you through your word, through our confession, through communion, and through song, I would pray that this would be a time of response where you would help us see our own sin, repent of it, and come to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.